A note to our listeners, the following episode features discussion of suicide. There are lots of things connecting the brain and the rest of the body. you got veins, bones, skin, tissue, all kinds of stuff. A neck. In fact, if you separate the brain from the rest of the body, neither one tends to do so great. Don't try it, just trust me. So it stands to reason that mental health and physical health are linked together pretty closely. It's all health. Something goes wrong with your physical health, other things might go wrong with your mental health. Or, putting it more succinctly, something goes wrong with your health, other things might go wrong with your health. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. John Cotter is an author and professor based in Rhode Island. His new memoir, Losing Music, is about his experiences with contracting and living with Meniere's disease. That's an inner ear disorder that can cause dizziness, vertigo, and hearing loss. And in John's case, suicidal depression as his life comes apart. He loses balance, loses teaching positions, and he experiences the loss of music in his life. John Cotter, welcome to Depression Mode. John, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. How are you feeling today? Uh, I'm okay. A little, t- you know, I'm in Colorado, and everybody tells you to hydrate, and you tell them, "I used to live here. Of course, I know to hydrate. Stop, you know, lecturing me, <laughs> you know." And then you get here, and events get ahead of you, and you you wake up the next day, and you think, "Why do I feel like this? Why do I feel like a hand towel that's been <laughs> wrung out?" And you and it's because I didn't drink any water yesterday, so I'm I'm hydrating now. But anyway, okay. I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I'm feeling. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thanks, and thanks for writing the book. And it's uh, it's fascinating stuff. Let's go back to to the beginning. Well, where you begin the book and and where your troubles began. When did you first start noticing that something was wrong with uh, with your hearing and with your body? You know, I probably was losing my hearing before I realized that I was. Uh, I used to. I was never a headphone person. You know, before this, uh, behind the scenes, before this podcast, you you advised me to put on headphones. It's funny, I didn't even own a pair. I had some earbuds. I didn't Mm -hmm. really own headphones in my 20s. And maybe I would wear them to jog, but that was it. I would just play music on speakers in my living room. And people would knock on my door. And they would say, it's so loud. And I thought they were crazy. I would think to myself, but I can barely hear it. (laughs) You know? Uh, Well, of course, this should have been a sign that something was going on. Right. A sense of disorientation, liking parties less, liking intimate conversations more. I was changing. I thought maybe I was just getting older. But then I would I was living in Boston. I was commuting to Marblehead, which if your listeners don't know the area, it's about an hour up the coast. It's a long commute. And I would listen to books on, on CD or audiobooks, you know, and I would listen to music and I would think, well, that's funny. I seem to remember that bass was more arresting. Or I guess this British narrator just mumbles, as that people from that island do, right? Talking into their sleeve. But, it, you know, I would be at the copy machine and I would turn around and a co-worker would have been talking to me for two or three minutes. And I didn't know. And I tried to play it off. I tried to laugh it off. But clearly something was wrong. And I, as I describe in the book, you know, what I used to, on the way home, it's a drive up the coast. I used to pull over 
and jog along the beach and jump in the water and swim. And I would climb out of the water, you know, and the sun would, would be going down because maybe it was September by then and maybe uh, the sun was starting to go down on my commute. And I would be toweling off and I would realize I don't hear the ocean. You know, I've been hearing the ocean all my life. My grandparents used to live on the shore and it's a very familiar sound, you know, that the rush and then the gravelly recession, the rush and the gravelly recession. The, what is it? Me- melancholy long withdrawing roar, right? As somebody once, as somebody once said, uh, nice. and I could, I couldn't hear it at all. And I uh, turned around and then I could, once I saw it, I could hear it again, which was a very weird thing. And uh, I went into an audiologist. Well, of course, later I would find out that the brain tricks you into thinking you're hearing things that you're not hearing. You know, if, if I'm listening to someone and I'm not reading their lips, I have a hard time understanding them. I look at their lips and suddenly I understand them. It's not necessarily because I'm hearing better, right? We hear with all our senses at once. This is obvious when I use that example, but it's true in every situation. We hear with all of our senses at once. So when you talk about when you would face the water, then you would hear it. Was that your mind just providing a a backup track and reminding you what it sounded like? Yeah, that's right. When you start to lose your hearing, the music that you understand better, that you comprehend better, at least in my case, and I know in, in the case of some others too, is the music you remember. I was dancing at a wedding in 2014 and I had no idea what the music was. It just sounded like this formless chaos to me. This just aggressive, oral mess. And I, I said to my wife, what is it? And she said, it's Billie Jean. Oh. And the minute she said that, I heard, dun, 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 dun. It announces, it, it collected the noise and uh, organized it. My, my, but my brain did that work. My, my, you know, my brain had to help my ears do that work because I knew the song. If it had it been a song I didn't know, I, you know, I would have been lost. So you have this experience at the beach where you're realizing that, that something is different at least. Were you realizing that something was wrong? Did it scare you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course it did. Of course it did. And I mean, what's more, you know, I started, the other element of this is that shortly afterward, I started getting these vertigo attacks, right, where the room it was like someone had picked up and spun the room and the, mm-hmm. you know, corner of the ceiling would be the corner of the floor. And I felt like I was falling and I couldn't stop. I thought maybe I was dying. So in those moments I was overwhelmed by panic. Right. But that was a really acute panic. You know, the sense of losing my hearing is more of a. More of dread. More of probably. A, yeah. It's dread. Well, yeah, your, your frontal cortex, your prefrontal cortex gets involved there. Right. It's not just lizard brain fear. It's, mm. it's anticipation of fear and, and a reflection on fear. And I, I felt I was about 30 years old and I felt as though I hadn't really done the things in my life that I had wanted to do, that I'd let myself down in a lot of ways as a person. I mean, a lot of people feel this way. We have these expectations for ourselves. We think we know what the course of our life is going to be. And, uh, when this started to happen, I thought, well, if I lose my hearing and I lose my balance, all of these things that I wanted to do, it'll always be too late to do them. Like what kind of things? Well, I wanted to write books. I wanted to teach. Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a, a pretty good teacher. 
by the time it got really bad, by the time I, I, you know, I was so dizzy I couldn't drive, and by the time I wasn't, I wasn't able to make out conversations even in quiet rooms, by the time it totally took over my life, I was teaching here in Colorado. I was teaching environmental ethics at this Colorado School of Mines, and uh, I couldn't do it anymore. And this is something I had wanted to do for so long, and I, I couldn't look at a screen. I couldn't. Uh, you know, I had fallen in love a few years earlier with the woman I would later marry, but I worried that this would destroy our relationship, that we wouldn't be able to communicate anymore, that she'd be too frustrated, that this would be too much responsibility for one partner to be disabled, that this wasn't what she had signed up for. I, wor I mean, I wasn't able to... I used to love to call people on the phone and walk around and just talk on the phone for hours drinking coffee and, and talking with old friends and I couldn't understand their voices anymore. And it felt incredibly isolating. And I, I, I was overwhelmed by this sense of regret. And I felt as though the life that I was supposed to live was foreclosed. Mm. And I felt uh, that I had failed. And I started to do this very weird thing, this very ticky thing. I started to think about the past and think, what could I have done differently? And of course, the irony here, right, is that probably nothing, because they don't know what causes, right? Meniere's disease is the name for what it turns out that I had, right? There's no known cause. It's probably genetic. So there's, what could I have done to avoid it? Nonetheless, I went back over my head. I thought, should I have just worked like crazy to make as much money as I could so that I'd be insulated as these events took place? But then I thought, well, but then I would have had to live a different life. Then I wouldn't have met any of the people who mean so much to me. Or then I thought to myself, well, should I have been more Epicurean? You know, should I have just had much more fun? You know, should I have just you know, woken up at 7 a.m. to go, go get drunk and do roller coasters? You know, and uh, always a wise plan. Uh, well, it's, it's 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 a plan B. It's, yeah. it's, not a, it's never a plan A. All right. But All should right. it have been plan A? You know, and yeah. uh, should I have got? Should I have explored? You know, the the, the you know should I, should I have made angel dust a bigger part of my life? I don't know. So I I have felt pretty, but that would have left me uninsured. Mm. That would have left me. I didn't know what the right path had been but clearly this illness clearly this thing taking me out of the world was the wrong path so it felt like like a koan like some question that there's no answer to and it it just locked up all the gears in my head and it it made me very very darkly darkly depressed how long of a process was it between that run and swim on the beach to to when you're unable to teach? A few years. Yeah. And, you know, at first I thought we could live with it. I thought, well, it'll be tolerable, you mm. know. I thought, well, okay, I just have hearing that comes and goes. Of course, this is impossible to explain to people. You know, if you say, well, my hearing is present some days, and in other days I can't hear. They don't understand that at all. They, 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 they just, they, they, and it's another thing that separates you from other people. that makes you feel sort of lonely. Yeah. Well, I imagine people would say, well, have you been to the doctor? What did the doctor say? Yeah, and the doctor said it's called Meniere's disease. 
there's no cure. There's no prognosis. We can't tell you what course it's going to take. Probably you'll lose the vast majority of your hearing, maybe not all of it. Probably you'll lose your sense of balance, develop a condition called, you know, oscillopsia, and you'll, you know, you'll totter when you walk. And, but we don't know. <laughs> and it's just this, it's this real sense of being up, up in the blue of, of, you know, being lost. How long did it take to get to that diagnosis of Meniere's disease? Like, did you did you travel around to to different doctors to try to figure out what was going on, or was it pretty clear from the beginning? It took a long time and a short time. So first, I was told it was Meniere's disease, and I was prescribed a couple of drugs to take. But then I became dissatisfied with the diagnosis when I started reading up on it. What I was dealing with didn't seem like a classic case, so mm -hmm. I went to see some other. I went to see some other otologists and they said, yeah, it doesn't seem like a classic case because your hearing comes and goes all the time. And that's just not typical. You know, most people will have a steady progression of loss and you have some days are good days and some days are bad days. The roaring in my ears, the, the, the noise that I hear at all times, the tinnitus should, should really have only been present while I had vertigo attacks and it wasn't, I had it all the time, but then sometimes it would go away. Uh, so I, I went to see doctors in Los Angeles. I saw, I went to Yale. I went to the Mayo Clinic. And, you know, they, they tried out different things. They thought, well, maybe it's, you know, neurological. Maybe it's uh, optimological. Eventually, it was determined that, you know, I, I saw one doctor at Mayo Clinic who said, look, she said, your ears are just really screwed up. They're probably deformed. And we won't know why they're screwed up until you're dead and we cut you open. Thanks, Doc. Yeah, it's not, it's not something to look forward to. It's like, oh, great. Okay, so once I'm dead and you cut me open, then we'll know, and then we can have a pizza party. You know? <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's not something you're working toward. The name of the book is, is Losing Music. What did music mean to you before this came on, and what did it, music start to mean when you were dealing with this disease? Well, you know, I've never been, a lot of people will look at the title and say, were you a musician? I wasn't a musician, but I, I love music so much, which seems not very interesting to say because I, everybody loves music. I mean, don't you love music? I mean, this sure. is something that unites us as, yeah, it's like food. Yeah. I'm a big fan of food and gravity. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> music is, music is a quality of uh, oral landscape, right? I mean, it's a quality of this music inside people's voices. You know, there's music in the rustle of the leaves. There's, I mean, that's not even, and I'm not even being facetious when I say that. That's, that's, you know, that's, I'm not just trying to be sound like John Cage when I say that. It's true. You know, when I moved out to Colorado, on the days when I could hear well, the rustle of leaves on a windy day had a very different sound than it did in Massachusetts. It directs the days. It, it colors the days. But, but music for me was this place that I would go to escape and reconnect with myself and organize emotion. You know, you feel all these different conflicted things. You, you know, it's a Thursday in October and you're nominated for a teaching award and you hear that a friend is gravely ill and you're late for an appointment and you know, your wife's tied up in meetings all day. You can't talk to her and the stove still isn't working. The repair guy has to come and that's, there's 40 emotions going on. Right. And also it's the second anniversary of the day your father was buried. 
Mm. You know, and so, and you know, it's just it's just this this forty emotions. So you put on a song, and it could be it could be the Goldberg variations, it could be a Tom Waits song, it could be uh, Ali Farkatura. You put on a song, and it I feel like it organizes and directs those emotions. It turns them into an arrow, and it gives you a way. But that's what art does. Art organizes the chaotic mess of lived experience in a way that your brain can process it because it has a shape. And can you feel like you see all the way around it? So then when you were losing your hearing or intermittently losing your hearing and when you were dealing with this vertigo, you didn't have that escape. You didn't have that, that solace any longer. I didn't have that friend. Hmm. I didn't have that part of myself. So it, it, it felt, it's almost like when someone dies, you know, when someone dies that you've been close to, you feel like a part of yourself has died. And that's how it was with me. And so what did that do? Oh, it, it, it left me feeling like a trapped animal. I didn't have a way to organize my emotions. People would tell me to draw, to sketch, because they were trying to find some way that I could connect with art, that I could organize the that I could organize emotion, that I could organize experience. But I can't draw. <laughs> I'm not any good at it. I couldn't go, you know, I couldn't. I, uh, nothing, I mean, I love paintings. I'm a very, you listeners can probably tell I'm using a lot of $10 words. I'm a big reader. You know, I love to read, but it's not, my mind was too much of a chaos to, to make sense of words on a page. And often, you know, because I was dizzy, the words would move around. I had trouble looking at screens. And so I just wished to hell I could listen to some Cowboy Junkies Black Eyed Man album and just, you know, float away on that harmonica. I wished I could put on Papa Wembe's Abayakei and the way the piano and his voice seemed to be dancing with each other in that song almost like two characters in a, in a, in a ballet, it would have taken me not only outside myself, which is what music does, but more deeply into yourself, mm. right? Paradoxically. And this, so I felt trapped. I felt like a, no one understood what I was going through because it's first, it's a rare disease. I didn't know anybody, anyone who had it. And if I went onto chat rooms online and just typed in, you know, because people would say, well, try to find communities, try to find other people who are experiencing the same thing online, you know? So I would go online and I would go into many years' chat rooms and maybe it's different now. I hope it's different now. This is back in 2013, 2014. You know, it's a long time ago. It was people talking about how they wanted to kill themselves. Hmm. That's what the chat rooms were. The chat rooms for Meniere's disease were filled with people dealing with suicidal ideation and talking each other down and sometimes talking each other up. And, you know, somebody would say, you know, maybe talking each other up means something else. It's funny, actually, that they, but somebody would say, I think I'm going to do it today. Or somebody would say, I can't handle good days anymore. I don't want any more good days because all they do is remind me of how bad the bad days are. All they do is remind me of what I can't have anymore, what I lost. I have a day when I feel as though I could get dressed and go to work, when I feel as though I could walk my dog, when I feel as though I could put on, you know, the, uh, Tina Turner again, you know, and, and I can't. People would say, I've lost everything the person I was died anyway. It doesn't matter if I die now because I'm not the person I was. 
you know, people would say this dark shit. John, it wasn't helpful to me. It didn't foster a sense of community. I've been suspicious of the word community ever since. Was it, uh, what was it that bothered you about it so much? Were you recognizing feelings that you were having yourself? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody wants to spend their afternoon reading a bunch of yeah. chat groups of people dealing with suicidal ideation, right? It's not, it's not the kind of thing I would have done even if I was healthy. But yeah, I wanted to kill myself, yeah. More with John Cotter in just a moment. As we go to break, here's music from Papa Wembe, the Congolese musician John mentioned. I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. I'm Elliot Kalin. And together we are The Flophouse, a long-running podcast on the Maximum Fun Network, where we watch a bad movie and then talk about it. And because we're so long-running, maybe you haven't given us a chance. I get it, but you don't actually have to know anything about previous episodes to enjoy us, and I promise you that if you find our voices irritating, we grow endearing over time. Perhaps you listened to one of our old episodes and decided that we were dumb and immature. Well, we've been doing this a while now. We have become smarter and more mature, and generally nicer to Dan. But we are only human, so no promises. Find the Flophouse on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get podcasts. Back with the author John Cotter. Before the break, he was talking about when his depression reached suicidal levels. How far along in your disease was that? I'd had to quit all the work I was doing because I couldn't drive. I was living in Colorado and, and the public transportation out here is, is for shit. And, uh, to some extent it's, I mean, it's large distances, everything's so far away. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to find public transport alternatives that'll be cost effective, but I couldn't, I couldn't get to work. And even if I could have got there, I was struggling so badly to hear students and I was an adjunct, uh, instructor, right? So I was contingent faculty. So the same protections afforded, I mean, look, one of the schools I worked for said to me, our preference would be that you resign. And I wasn't, <laughs> I was a good teacher. I was someone with great evals. I mean, I, re I really was a good teacher. And so you know, I could have hired a lawyer, but I wasn't in any position to do it. Hmm. I was too panicked. Yeah, I, 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 I was stuck in bed most of the time. And it wasn't the bed that I sleep in. It was, a, it was an old futon in, in the room I'd been using as an office. Hmm. And I went there in the afternoons because I couldn't move through the apartment easily because I was too dizzy because the, 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 my inner ears, first of all, they don't even know, they understand the ears so little. They don't really understand why people experience 
episodes of Vertigo of this kind, right? They understand some. If, if, if the odalisk, the crystals inside your ears, become misaligned, yes, that they understand. There's a maneuver to fix that. But the kind of Vertigo I was experiencing, it's they they have a theory. They think the fluid of the inner ear becomes uh, congested. And that there's no way to repair it, really. But uh, I, without theories were little help to me. I had to hold the wall to walk. It felt like things were spinning, like the floor was coming out from under me all the time. So I was just laying there. I couldn't hear music. I couldn't look at a screen because it was moving too much. It made me feel sick. So I was, uh, I was just lying there. And people would say to me, well, at least it's not fatal. And I would think, just you wait. Yeah, the hell it's not. The hell it's not. Yeah. Did you have any history of of depression or any history of of this sort of mood before this disease came into your life? Not really. Yeah. I don't think so. I think I'd always been. I I I'll take that back. Yeah, I think I probably had been depressed at different times in my life, but I wouldn't have had the language to understand it. You know, I I think I just thought I was bad at life. <laughs> really? I think I thought I was bad at life. You know, uh, if, 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 if I had to get to class and I was feeling blue and I, I was just taking too long to get there and get organized, or I was just lingering, looking at, you know, the leaves moving the trees and feeling kind of sad. I would just think that is because I suck <laughs> and I'm no good at, uh, I'm not, I'm not efficient. I'm not well-organized like other people are. I'm not someone who's one of life's winners, one of life's soldiers. Because that's what... But I see, we live in... Everybody blames everything on capitalism now. But, I mean, understandably... It's pretty I guilty. Mean, <laughs> it's pretty guilty, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, everything, everything blames... Yeah, every, everyone blames things on capitalism now in 1860, right? Everybody blames... <laughs> but the damn bourgeois. But I, I mean... Capitalism demands of its citizens everything you demand of a soldier. It demands youth, vigor, health, single-minded determination, hard belief. And these qualities... Competitiveness. Competitive, absolutely. Competitiveness, a certain bloody-mindedness. Yes, an ability to follow orders. I mean, these are part of the human, as we know, condition, but they're not the whole of it. And I feel as though I was always kind of a drifty, dreamy person. I like to take long walks and, and think and listen to music and, you know, <laughs> write things. You know, make direct plays, make art. You know, I, I'm, I'm a creative person like, like you. And life has a place for creative people if, from the age of 12 in their prep school, they're, they're working very hard to get into Yale and then the Iowa Writers' Workshop and then really don't blow it with that agent who's making the school visit and get that deal, right? Then, and then it will reward you creatively. By the way, it helps to be born into means. <laughs> yes. It, it, so that's something you don't want to screw up. Right. I mean, come, come on. <laughs> So then when the Meniere's disease was was part of your life and the depression returned, was it 
was it a similar depression to what you had had before, but just magnified or was it a, a different sort of depression? It was similar in the sense that I think there's two kinds of people. There's people who feel frustration and externalize it. And there's people who feel frustration and internalize it. And I, I'm the latter. I turn it inward. I blame myself. So in that sense, it was the same. What was different was that I self-blame had become self-hatred. And I, I thought I should be taken out of the picture. And I thought, I thought if I was taken out of the picture, it would improve the lives of the people around me. Because I'm not, you know, I, people tell me, and I understand why now, because I'm, I've, I'm removed from this, thank God. But I, I, people tell me now, well, suicide is selfish. Well, of course. But I saw it at the time as courteous because I thought, I'm demanding too many resources of the people in my life. I'm a burden to them and not a pleasure. I'm not able to, I'm not able to bring happiness into their life. I just wasn't able, I was too sick. I couldn't do it. And everybody loves it when people who are sick have a good sense of humor. And you know, the thing is, I actually did have a pretty good sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh but it was too dark man yeah it was too dark so when you had been to these doctors and when you had been to the mayo clinic and all these places did they offer anything beyond a diagnosis or was it just like here's what's wrong with you best of luck did they offer you any treatment they recommended antidepressants I mean, when you go to... I'm sorry I'm laughing, but I'm laughing. That's okay. I mean, look, it's it's funny, right? It's funny. When you go to someplace like Mayo Clinic, somebody told them that mental health is important, that treating the whole person is important, and it became a buzzword, and they hired probably some fucking consultant, I don't know, to put together a questionnaire. And so when you show up there, they give you a questionnaire, and it says, do you ever have suicidal thoughts? And I checked yes. And it said, do you blame yourself? And I said, yes. And it said, do you ever experience depression? Yes, I do. Right? And then you hand it back to them. And then when you leave, there's a little note that says, you should take antidepressants because you checked yes on this thing. You know, they also, I mean, there was a thing, they have a condition that they kind of, I think, sort of invented called subjective dizziness that. I, you don't hear much about it anymore. I think it was something they tried out that didn't fly. It's one of these diagnoses of exclusion. Like, well, we can't figure out why this is going on. So let's just, we'll name it something and we'll, but, but there's no treatment. And there's so many things like that. I mean, really, medical science can treat a pretty small uh, percentage of the things that are wrong with us. It's just that it managed to nail some of the big ones. And so we think it can do almost anything. And of course, can't. So, you know, I took antidepressants. It was probably helpful. It was probably beneficial. Just ahead, John Cotter had been dealing with all this hearing loss and attendant mental health impact. But I am talking to him now. So, how? Co-Optober continues in celebration of National Co-Op Month. 
I'm Kevin Ferguson, senior producer and worker owner at Maximum Fun. I'm Marissa Flaxbart, producer, and I'm also a worker owner at Max Fun. This week is all about community. Of course, we wouldn't be a co op without the Max Fun community. And we love it whenever members of our audience get together. So we're having another Max Fun meetup day this Thursday, October 12th. And next week, we'll be hosting a panel discussion with other worker owners across the co op community. And we are still selling our limited edition launch crew merch available to all Max Fun members. But only through the end of the month. For more info on Meetup Day and everything Co-Optober, head to MaximumFun.org slash Co-Optober. That's C-O-O-P-T-O-B-E-R. Have a great week. Back with writer John Cotter, author of the memoir Losing Music. When did you develop some new ways of of dealing with this thing that did prove helpful and, and was was medicine a part of that advancement or did you have to do that on your own? Medicine was never a, a part of that advancement. Uh, I mean, if anything, the doctors that I that I worked with slowed me down. You know, they recommended medications that didn't seem to help. In fact, some cases seemed to make things worse. So then I would Google the medications and then I would get lost in these rabbit. I'd look at PubMed articles. I went to the Widener library and I pulled up a bunch of research and I just started reading. Uh, I just started reading all these, all these old studies about these medications I've been described. It wasn't one study that proved their efficacy, not one, right? Not one, you know, it, it just, the, the prescriptions that people had been giving out since the 1930s. And it was just, they just wanted to give you something. Right. It was essentially the equivalent of a sugar pill, except that it was an actual drug that could have made you, you know, that, that, that had side effects. So I stopped taking that stuff. You know, it was uh, I, I, I'll carve out an exception for the audiologists that I worked with. Right. Audiologists, meaning people who work with hearing aids and sound and cochlear implants and their PhDs instead of MDs. And unlike a lot of MDs I'd worked with, they listen to the patient and they try to find creative solutions so they would say things to me like, well, if you can't talk on your phone, try, you know, try connecting through your hearing aids. Then the hearing aids, the Bluetooth was crumbing on this set of hearing aids I was using. And they'd say, well, try to buy a pair of really expensive headphones and see if that works. And it, but they would just try to talk through solutions with me. But they looked at my individual case. But anyway, that's not the question you asked. You asked about what changed my perspective. Yeah. What made things, what improved things? I mean, the love of the people around me, you know, and I, 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 I think it's luck. It's absolutely luck that I happen to have a support system in my life. You know, I, I have my, my wife, the, the writer, Elisa Gabbert, and I got married and she said, look, you know, I'll, I'm going to commit to you, even, you know, even though this is, this thing is happening to you. You have to commit to me. If, if I, if I find myself in dire straits, you have to be there for me. That's the deal. And I said, you know, okay. Which means if I'm making that deal, I can't kill myself. But it's not just that. I mean, it's not, it's not as simple as, you know, we also, we decided I should talk about my hearing trouble a bit less. Because what you talk about becomes what you think about to some extent. It's acting as if. 
But also the condition began to stabilize a little bit, finally. It had never stabilized completely. I will still have vertigo episodes, but not every other day. And so I'm able to, you know, if it's been a few months, I can just I'll drive a car. You know, I can, I can teach again. Gradually, you figure out how to live in this different body. Gradually, you learn how to adapt. The thing that finally talked me out of killing myself... I mean, it was all of these things, but I, I, I went to live at a homeless shelter for a month in eastern Colorado. Lighthouse, writing an arts center, this, this um, writing an arts center in Colorado was sending teachers to homeless shelter in, in eastern Colorado, about an hour from the Kansas border. It's flat, nothing there. It's, it's, it's not the most alluring locale, right? They were sending us out there to, to work with the residents of the shelter, most of whom were recovering from addiction. Struggling with addiction is a good, I mean, that's cliche, but it's a good way to put it. And these were people who really had never had a chance in life. A lot of them, right? A lot of them were people who dealt with so much abuse in the homes where they grew up or had been foster kids just kicked around by the system or had had parents who were alcoholics or drug addicts who neglected them, who weren't given regular meals as kids, who they didn't have the opportunity. We live in this world that thinks to itself, well, surely they could have gotten a scholarship to Phillips Exeter and got into Yale. And then, you know, the Iowa They just need to try hard. They just need to try. They need to pull themselves up by their own, you know, bare feet. Right. Right. Which is how, how the people who, who run our world get their money. They, they, not, by, not by being born into a South African diamond mined fortune. <laughs> right. They were people who just hadn't had a chance. And many of them were unbelievably sweet and generous and kind. And I want to cry thinking about it. They were, you know, I, I got sick. I got food poisoning at the shelter and they took care of me. You know, they, they, they got me electrolytes. They were, they're very, they were cooked for me in their rooms. They took me fishing at the Creek behind the shelter. They were just, we had wonderful conversations and I, I, they were just unlucky. They were not remotely deserving of this fate, right? That they had encountered that had found them. And it, it made me think of luck in a different way than I had thought of luck before. I really think there is this thing outside of us. It's just, it's chance, right? It's the forces of chance. It's, it's, it's aleatory, right? We were just talking about John Cage, right? So it's, it's aleatory, meaning it's random, meaning we don't, deserve the misfortunes that befall us. We don't deserve the good things either. I was talking with the writer Teju Cole about this the other day. And I said, you know, you're you're down South and people will think a successful person is someone who, you know, got right with God and an unsuccessful person hasn't. Right. Or the, and then you go out, uh, out West and they'll say, oh, well, you're sending good thoughts to the universe. You're open to the universe. And so the universe is rewarding you. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, and, you know, he teaches at Harvard. He said, oh, yeah. And here at Harvard, they think, you know, it's meritocracy. They think they just are smarter. 
They think they are just and not not that they worked harder, just that they are they, they are smarter. And simply because they are smarter, they deserve these things. And he said to me, he made a good, very good point. He said, look, he said, I'm not saying they don't deserve these things. I'm saying everybody deserves these things. I'm just saying they don't deserve it more than anybody else does. He said, but they really think they do. But everybody has a different way of organizing this idea of who is deserving and who is undeserving. Yeah. And I, I began to realize it's just... It's the movement of the wind in the trees. And so that that pulled you out of your suicidal thinking? It helped. Yeah. It's it's hard to point to one thing, but that was a big part of it. That was a big part of it. Because I, I it just made me think of, of agnosticism as not just a, a cosmology, but as uh a way of life like a moral philosophy really yeah exactly that's right that's that that's exactly right that's exactly it was a moral philosophy yeah that's right it's we don't know we don't know why the things that happen to us happen to us we may think we know and our brains have to trick us into thinking we know right but we don't really know why the things that happen to us happen to us and we don't really know what's going to happen and we think we're in control of it, but we're not in control of it. Was writing this book a part of learning how to cope with what had happened to you? Oh, yeah. Writing this book is how I pulled myself. Because, you know, it, what we do need, right? So we have to live in this in this world that is, is determined by chance. But we do need... Uh, meaning in our lives right and it, and it's and to some to this to this extent i guess my philosophy is kind of existential right it, it is kind of the way the existentialism in the way that like a kembu or a sart would i even though they had different ideas would have defined it right it's we have to i don't buy into the philosophy completely but we have to kind of decide on the meaning of our own life you know Otherwise, because otherwise someone else is going to do it or the universe is going to do it. And the thing is, other people in the universe are going to do it anyway, but we can at least throw our hat in. Right. And so I needed some meaning. I needed something to live for. Mm. And writing the book, sharing the story became the thing I was living for. And uh, I, I'm alive. Now, when... This interview was scheduled. I was half thinking, am I going to have to type out my questions for, <laughs> for yeah. him to, to read? How am I talking right. to you and you're hearing me seemingly just fine right now? My hearing has largely stabilized. It is stabilized at a low level. But the good news is your voice is in the range of, of what I can hear, <laughs> right? So, so I'm wearing expensive headphones. The volume is turned all the way up. Your voice is kind of faint, but okay. I'm looking at your I'm looking at your lips as we're talking. I we're can see Zoom. you. I can see exactly. I, we're on Zoom. Not yeah, exactly. I wasn't casting my mind into the into the. <laughs> into the uh, <laughs> I see you now, John. I can see you sitting in a room with a <laughs> microphone. But I, I yeah, I'm, I'm looking at your lips. I'm wearing high powered headphones. When I walk around in the world, I wear high-powered hearing aids. Not not the not the kind with the open earpiece, but the kind with a closed earpiece. That the only sound coming into me is the is the kind the kind the hearing aids are, are bringing me, and the hearing aids 
So, so the kind of hearing loss I have is uh, it's shaped in a, a, a sort of a parabola, right? Most people, it would be kind of a straight line. And this is sort of a parabola. It's the low tones that I've lost. Mm. You know, organs, kick drums, very deep voices, James Earl Jones, right? The very higher tones are pretty good, except they're starting to drop too. But the middle range, which is also the human vocal range, is okay. It's not as good as most people's hearing is, right? Most people, I mean, ch- children can pick up anything anything over 10 decibels, right? Mm-hmm. And when we get a little older, it's about 20. We can't hear certain sounds anymore. Everybody, it's true of everybody, right? You can't hear the you know, wind in the grass anymore. It doesn't quite come across. For me, it's about 60. Okay. Right. Anything under 60 decibels, I have trouble. I don't know if this kind of details would be interesting to your listeners, but anything under, anything under 60 decibels. But, but the hearing aids help compensate mm-hmm. for that. Single voices in quiet rooms with the help of electronics, absolutely I'm getting by. Absolutely yeah. I'm getting by. So yeah. did music go away and then return for you? Well, it's not what it used to be. It did go away. I've lost some of it for good, right? So, like, I can't really listen to Beethoven anymore because he's so dynamic. He's always going from very soft to very loud to very soft to very loud, right? I mean, all of his symphonies start very soft. You think about the Ninth Symphony, you barely hear it when it starts. It's just a few disorganized sounds that gradually rise up into something that's much too loud. And so what I have to do is I turn the volume way high for the quiet, still can't hear them, and then he comes in with the loud stuff, and then I have to turn it way down again, right? I I can't do it. As opposed to someone like Bach, who's pretty consistent, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's like a pop song, right? It's just, it's loud and steady. But I still can't, I mean, I can't hear a piccolo. I can't hear a flute. I can't hear, uh, the piano is really no good to me as an instrument anymore, unfortunately. I, I, I can hear the, the piano part, but not the forte part. Which is another reason that I was at a, I was at a party the other day and somebody sat down to play the Moonlight Sonata. And even though I was sitting near the piano, I was, I was missing some of it. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't catching it all, but violins, trumpets, particularly solo violin, I can, I can still hear like box partitas. Absolutely. Tom Waits. Yeah. Cause I, well, you know, Tom Waits, because I, if I was hearing him for the first time, I don't think I could, but yeah. because, but because He's my lifetime companion <laughs> because I know all the songs by heart, even the ones I don't like very much. I can, uh, I'm hearing Your Tom Waits fills it in like the, like the ocean, like you talked exactly. about with the ocean. Yeah. I'm hearing, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing Tom Waits like I hear the ocean. Same, same roar, same melancholy, long withdrawing roar. Right. <laughs> right. With a little bit of gravel thrown in. A little bit of gravel. The book is Losing Music, a Memoir. The author is John Cotter. John Cotter, thanks. John, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you today. I wish you good luck, and I I wish you listeners well. Losing Music is available where books are sold, because it's a book. Next time on Depression Mode, Jason Pargin is a very popular and well-regarded novelist. You, I assume, and everyone listening, have at some point overslept 
for something important. And you woke up and you realized, like the light coming in from the window, you knew you overslept even before you looked at a clock. You realize something's gone wrong and you're not going to be late for work. You're going to be late for your flight. That moment of panic, it's panic and it's also self-loathing. You wake up hating yourself because you allowed yourself too much rest. Okay, I wake up to that sensation every morning and I don't have a job. Anxiety doesn't care. Depression Mode depends on the donations of our listeners. That is the way this show is able to exist. If you have already donated, thank you. You are helping get this show out to people where it can help. If you haven't donated yet, no sweat. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash join. MaximumFun.org slash join. Find a level that works for you. Select Depression Mode from the list of shows and you're done. You're taken care of. You will listen differently knowing that you helped make this show possible. Be sure to stop by our merchandise store at maxfunstore.com. That's maxfunstore.com. We got I'm Glad You're Here merchandise there, t-shirts and mugs, and we have depression mode sweatpants. We have all sorts of things. Maxfunstore.com. Be sure to hit subscribe, give us five stars, write rave reviews. That helps get the show out into the world where it can help folks. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available 24-7 in the United States by calling 988. The Crisis Text Line, also free and always available, text the word HOME to 741741. Our Instagram and Twitter are both at DepressPod. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. You can search that up. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at John Moe with an H. Please use our electric mail address to get in touch with us, depressmode at maximumfun.org. Hi, credits listeners. Stop Making Sense is playing in theaters again, and you should go, if at all possible. Tina Weymouth is the low-key heart of that band. Depression Mode is made possible by your contributions. The show is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our music, including our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer Maybe there's no answer Hi, this is Anne and Gloria Pancake from Oak Park, Illinois. Gloria reminds you it's time to put your phone down and go for a walk. Enjoy. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papuchik. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows, supported directly by you.